Well, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that takes a deeper look at the news of the day, and it gives you a thoughtful perspective, or so we hope, about what's happening in America, at home and abroad, in the White House. Joining me today is Byron York, columnist at the Washington Examiner and Fox News contributor. We've got an extended discussion with Byron. He's got a few great pieces in the Washington Examiner, and we'll dive a little deeper into them today. What's going on with Trump and Mueller and the Congress and the Justice Department? We'll get to the bottom of it. Also, Claude and I want to dive into some of the emails sent our way. You all loved that last time. I like it, too. I love responding. Feel free to email us at BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. First, let me discuss a couple things. Start with Kanye West. Uh, we noted, as did others, how interesting it was that Kanye West said that Trump was his guy and was wearing his hat. Uh, make America great again. But, you know, these guys, these professional, you know, pop culture figures, they often aren't steady or often aren't, <laughs> you know, uh, as a friend of mine says, they're often not uh, rooted, grounded, you know, in reality. They so, can change. So he uh, was talking and he went on TMZ, whatever that is, and was going on and talked about 400 years of slavery and said, 400 years sounds like a choice to me. Well, that was uh, right. in, inept, uh, inarticulate, uh, awkward, or just plain stupid. Right. <laughs> Either or. Right. Of course, the liberals have jumped on that say, see, the witness has just disqualified himself, and he has, essentially, Sure. by those ridiculous comments. Any, your thoughts on this? Just as uh, ridiculous as the statements, I think, to put so much weight, not necessarily on what Kanye West would have uh, said earlier about Trump's being this guy. You know, you carry it like a grain of salt, uh, not necessarily because he's a pop culture figure. I actually like when athletes, pop culture figure, speak up on certain things, whether I agree with them or not, because I think they're a member of... Um, you know, society can say what they want, but it's the fact that he has a history of doing things like this that are outside of politics and that are just kind of weird and odd and crazy. And so he says, "Oh, Trump's my guy." It's like, "Oh, that doesn't mean anything to me." I mean, it's kind right, of right. So it's off the wall, right? So I mean, if the first comment had was off the wall too, the praising Trump is what you're saying. Uh, that, so there, there, there were risks to celebrating oh, him, and, and oh, the da- downside was just uh, demonstrated. Sure. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, also related to the culture, we'll get into the politics here at a great extent with uh, with Byron, but I just want on the culture. You've heard a ton about it, but White House Correspondents' Dinner has had a long tradition of uh, these comedians insulting the president there as he is there in person, being gross and vulgar and stupid. Uh, Mrs. Bennett and I walked out on a couple. Uh, one of them I remember was uh, uh, Franken, Al Franken. Before oh, he was right. a senator, he was a comedian, really gross, really disgusting. We walked out. C-SPAN cameras followed us out. This uh, woman, what's her name, Wolf, Michelle yeah, Wolf, Michelle Wolf uh-huh. uh, was gross and stupid and vulgar and insulting. And people say, well, the president can be gross and vulgar and insulting. Yes, he can be. He's had his moments. So what's the difference? He's the president. This is just a journalist. Um, well, first of all, the president shouldn't, you know, stoop to the level of his critics. And, you know, sometimes I think he does shoot low um, and, and, and shouldn't do that. But uh, setting and, and uh, venue is important. Sarah Sanders, who was insulted several times in this uh, monologue by this comedian, was invited to be a guest at dinner. This was the White House Correspondents' Dinner. They invited her to be a guest. If you invite someone to be your guest and then insult them from the podium, 
it's the worst kind of ma- manners imaginable. If President Trump invited people to a White House dinner or any kind of dinner and then got up at the podium and insulted them, I would say exactly the same thing. Uh, plus, it was just such a low-grade, horrible thing. I mean, the, the comment on abortion, the so-called joke on abortion, which I will not repeat, was just so beyond the pale. But I take it she's being celebrated in some places. But that's the difference between those who say, well, the president does it too. That's That argument, by the way, is called tu quoque, which literally means you too. Um, so that if someone else does it, it gives you excuse for, for doing it. No excuse for her doing this. Um, and it was uh, terrible. And the fact the White House correspondents wouldn't apologize uh, formally. A lot of people, right. members did, but the organization won't and this really ends up helping trump because they just look so gross and so stupid and it looks like you know without the, an official apology from the organization that the organization just is, is behind it right. i invite you to my house for dinner i don't insult you i mean you would just you you just get up and go you say why was i invited here right and in the, in the back and forth between trump and the press yeah sometimes goes below the belt but it's it's a fight it's sure. not a dinner party okay that's a good point. That's right, a fact. Right. It's That's not a, a dinner point. party. Yep. So much going on, and we will uh, we will dig into this. We got an extended interview with Byron coming up, and again, please uh, get in touch with us if you have thoughts about what I'm saying, or what Byron or someone else on this show is saying, or just what you're thinking. When you know you think you're going to find me a sport here in the spring, go to it. You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, joining us now, as promised, is columnist at the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor, and a regular on this podcast, Byron York. Byron, um, what about these uh, questions, uh, allegedly questions that uh, the Mueller team has prepared to Donald Trump? Do we believe these actually are the questions? Uh, yeah, we do. I, I, I think that uh, I, it's not as if the Mueller team handed over a piece of paper. These are the questions precisely as we would ask them. But I do believe that uh, the Mueller team told the Trump team, you know, in conversation, these are our questions. And these questions are based on the notes that the uh, Trump uh, people took. And so they're a, a good faith representation of the questions that uh, Mueller has said he's interested in. So a reliable leak. Yeah, I think, the, you know, I think the questions are Mueller's actual questions. Okay. Um, Who leaked the, them? Don't know. Okay. Uh, don't know. We've said we've heard the Trump people say they don't know who leaked them, but um, the the New York Times said they got them from somebody outside the uh, Trump legal team, which is right. about three hundred twenty five million people in America. So um, who knows? All right. Um, but as you say, and I agree, these are no great news here. These are the kinds of questions you'd expect them to ask, correct? You know, I thought that the the actual questions, if you look at them, Michael Flynn and then Comey and then Jeff Sessions and then some collusion stuff, um, they're pretty much along the topics that we've been talking about for the last year. Yes, sir. Uh, to one, you know, Trump is looking for good news. It appears that Mueller has not opened up any big new area of inquiry that we didn't know about. Uh, this appears to be almost exactly the kind of stuff we've all been discussing for a year. Why are people saying, um, so great to have you on, by the way, just because all these uh, story breaks, I'm trying to figure out how this comes to be and what it means. How come everybody's saying, oh, well, one thing this show, not everybody, but several people are saying, oh, well, this shows this thing's going on for a long time. Why does it show it's going to go on for a long time? Well, I think there was some speculation ahead of time. Uh, that that Mueller might just be in this kind of uh, wrap-up phase, and then he might just have a few questions 
for the president that he could not get anywhere else. I mean, that's one of the legal standards involved in in submitting a question to the president. I mean, it, it, it has to be for information that Mueller cannot get through any other means. Okay. Because uh, imposing on the president is a pretty big deal. Um, I, I think the other thing to remark about is that these are 49 questions, but it's a lot more than that. I mean, there's no way this is just a, a little list. It's a very big list of questions because each question can lead to lots of follow-up questions. Take the question that says, when did you find out about yeah. the June 9th, 2016 Trump Tower meeting? Yeah. Well, that's obviously going to lead to follow-up questions in a conversational context. Who sure. told you? What did they tell you about the meeting? Uh, did they tell you who was involved? Did they tell you what it resulted in? Uh, did they tell you who, who was there uh, mm-hmm. among the Russians? Mm-hmm. I mean, just think of the number of questions that can come out of that one question. Sure. So the idea that this is 49 questions is just not accurate. I mean, this could be hundreds of questions. And I think there was one of Ken Starr's former prosecutors quoted uh, in a story today saying that, you know, this could be at least two days of questioning if Trump were to actually agree to this interview. All right. And let's 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 go into that. Uh, will he end up talking to Mueller? Must he? Well, I don't know. Um, I don't either. Uh, well, uh, here again, we're we're just like the other 325 million Americans. We don't know. Uh, I think there are a lot of factors involved. First of all, Trump's been getting a lot of advice, I think, to not do this, that it's either a perjury trap or it uh, imposes on executive privilege or lots of other reasons. Um, but there's... Clearly, I think, uh, a lot of reasons for Trump not to talk to Mueller. But we've now seen that Mueller has personally raised the prospect of subpoenaing Trump. We believe that part, too. Excuse me. We believe that part, too. This uh, this was part of the same league. Yeah, I think think that's probably true. Okay. So, I mean, that's going to be a big fight. I mean, if Trump says, no, I'm not going to talk, and Mueller says, here's your subpoena, that's going to go to the Supreme Court. And uh, Trump could lose. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens then. So um, I don't know. I mean, I I had thought that one way for Trump to limit this would be, for example, to take these 49 questions, which the original source of which were Mueller's office, and give them written answers to them. Yes. Which would not allow the sort of uh, mission creep that I was discussing earlier about how this could Mm -hmm. turn into a two-day interview. What about, and also in some sorry. of the answers, if Trump felt that some of the answers uh, touched on things that were privileged by executive privilege, then you just tell him that in the uh, uh, in the written uh, written answers, and then thus Mueller couldn't very well subpoena Trump to answer questions that Trump has already submitted in, in written form. Right strategy, I think. What about? Well, there are other people though. There are other lawyers who say. That no, uh, doing so would be to concede to waive the privilege and get Trump in just an endless uh, exchange with Mueller in which uh, if Trump wanted to, to claim any privilege in the future, he couldn't do it, either either to claim executive privilege or some sort of other presidency-related privilege or the Fifth Amendment, his Fifth Amendment right to, to not testify. Well, um, the, All of those could be, I think, damaged by giving written answers. So there's a debate going on, and, and I'm telling you, I, I don't know where it's going to 
end up. Seems to me, if I'm advising him, I'm telling him, don't go into that room alone with Mueller and all those people. Yes. Uh, let's avoid that. And so let's start with the written answers. And if that goes on for a long time, it goes on for a long time. If he makes six different responses on six different occasions to 49 questions, still, I think, well, I think he helps build a case for the public. Look, I've answered these questions. I've answered them six times now. And now they want to subpoena me or they want me to go and pray. Ridiculous. I've given all this all the time I can. Seems to me. I think you're making a good political argument. Okay, it's political. It's political argument. It's not a legal argument. Right. Right. Not a legal argument. What about what about Russia's recommendation? Did you see that Rush Limbaugh? What was that? He said, "I didn't hear it. I just saw this a second hand." He said, "Okay, I'll do it, and in fact, I'll do. It. I'll meet with you, but I want it to be just like Hillary Clinton." I did see that. I want yes. to be on a um, Saturday. Lawyers present. No recording. No under oath. Well, I mean, and by the way, I want the exoneration statement already already written. prepared. We meet. I want the conclusion already reached. Yes. Um, <laughs> Now, I think, look, Rush makes an excellent point there, and you're going to be hearing it yeah. a lot from Republicans about this enormous disparity in the way Trump has been treated in this investigation and the way Hillary Clinton was treated uh, in her email investigation. It's true, isn't it? It's true. Remember, we know, first of all, Comey's statement basically exonerating, you know, criticizing and then exonerating Clinton was on July 5th, 2016. And we know from Comey himself that they began writing the exoneration memo in yeah. May. Yeah. This was not only before Hillary Clinton was interviewed, it was before a lot of the other key witnesses were interviewed. Yeah. Of course, they gave out yeah, immunity Amazing. like it was candy. And then over the 4th of July interview uh, weekend, Hillary Clinton is interviewed on July 2nd, which is a Saturday. And so the offices are closed on Sunday and Monday for the 4th of July. And then Tuesday, they come out and say, okay, she's clear. Everything's great. And you think that, you know, this is a multi-hour interview. Did they really do all the work they could even to find out whether she had been fully truthful in every single one of her answers, which is something that seems to be of a lot of concern to the uh, Mueller people. So I think uh, I think Rush has a real point. I wouldn't be surprised to see the president's uh, defenders and maybe the president himself making that point more often. Yeah, he also had... Uh Council there chatting up, right? Cheryl Mills was there, and she did, I mean. Oh, yeah. Well, Clinton essentially, Clinton used a lot of her staff. She transformed them into her lawyers, and so all, all of a sudden their communications were privileged. No, I mean, I think he can also say, yeah, we'll do it, but you should start writing, you know, the conclusion. And I, yeah, I, yeah. And I will help you write it. This was a witch hunt, and there was no collusion. <laughs> 280 characters at a time. Yeah. yeah. No, but I, it is a very powerful point. It's easy. On that, I mean, this whole kind of equivalence thing, I'm shifting gears here some. Who's got the momentum? Who's on offense? Who's on defense? I, I, I was out of the country for just a few days. Got back yesterday, and, and the airports, you know, the, a lot of these airports are very partial to CNN, as you know. But I, yes. I, was, watching, I was watching CNN, and it's all about Rosenstein. And, you know, the impeachment has been threatened by, you know, Mark Meadows, Freedom Caucus, so on. And there's obviously a lot to, you know, find out about what happened at the Justice Department with Peter Strzok and his girlfriend and McCabe and so on. We're going to have parallel tracks here in terms of the accusations against the Justice Department. And 
on another track are the accusations against the president. Who's got more momentum? Are they equal momentum? Who's who's got the impetus? No, I think this is asymmetrical uh, warfare. Tell me. Obviously, in terms of the law and uh, and resources, I think the the Mueller office has it. What, what has everybody said? would happen if Trump fired Mueller. Well, there'd be political consequences, but the investigation would just go on. There'd be another one. Yeah. There'd be another council. Staff would go on. The whole thing would go on. There's a there's a relentlessness to okay. the special counsel's office that Trump um, can't get around. Uh, on the other hand, this is a political fight, and I'm one of those who believe, and I think you are too, that the president cannot be indicted. I, I agree with the Justice Department on this. The president cannot be indicted in office. Um, and that the proper remedy, if if there's a belief that the president has committed crimes, proper remedy is impeachment. And um, the rules that Mueller works by require him to write a report of some sort. And I think he's got a lot of discretion of how involved it is, how lengthy and involved it is. Write a report at the end of his investigation, give it to the attorney general, or in this case, the deputy attorney general. And my feeling is it's going to end up with Congress, as it should. And uh, then Congress can decide what to do with it. Now, in that big fight, the president has a lot of resources. And basically, it's his megaphone is the big, big resource in which he can say that it's a witch hunt, that the investigation was phony to begin with and that there's no underlying crime and they're trying to get him for obstructing an investigation into something that didn't even happen in the first place. These are powerful political arguments. And you have to remember, uh, I was joking earlier, 324 million Americans are not lawyers. All right. There's 324 million non-lawyers in America and only about a million point something. And the majority of members of Congress are not lawyers. Uh, I'll give you my fun fact of the day. In the mid-19th century, about 80 percent of members of Congress were lawyers. And today it's somewhere between 35 and 40 percent. Really? Yeah. So we've moved to a much more non-lawyer. That's good. uh, Exactly. Legislature. And those are going to be the people who will decide the president's uh, fate. So the political argument is something that is um, okay it's very powerful okay I want and I want to get into that I want to get into the impeachment trap and your fine column on that um, but but one last question about this parallel tracks which you said not parallel or maybe parallel but it, the asymmetrical which is I was talking to some conservative folks outside of the beltway in a couple different locations and it was interesting to me that it came up a couple times in different settings well wait well, well there was collusion but it was collusion by the Democrats so, you know they paid for the dossier and you know Hillary Clinton and the DNC and let's get yeah. to the bottom of that do we do we know is there poll data do we know if more people believe there was collusion by Trump, or more people believe there was collusion by the Democrats or or Hillary, uh, and doesn't matter. Oh well, I would. I mean, I don't know any specific poll. I would guess the latter because uh, it's been covered uh, yeah, daily in right. the media. It's been blanketing, for, blanketing the public. Well, more than a year. Okay. Um, but I look the investigation of the investigation. I think is a completely legit, legitimate thing. Yeah, but it won't derail the investigation. No, it won't. But it's right. part of. But it's part of Trump's defense. If the degree to which the the FBI wants to hire a Hillary Clinton uh, oppo researcher who's gathering dirt third hand in Russia on Trump may or may not be true. The FBI wants to use this guy at the height of the campaign. Yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, and then his still completely unverified 
uh, sex stories the FBI presents to the president-elect in the first face-to-face meeting between the FBI director and the president-elect, kind of J. Edgar Hoover style, we, we got the goods on you. These are powerful political arguments for the president if it comes to impeachment. But not so powerful that Democrats will say, let's call the whole thing off. I mean, this flame no, 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 no. This flames are uh, being turned think against it, it, us now. Yeah. Well, they'll be fighting for the middle uh, to some degree. Okay. All right. Um, All right. And we'll see where they they are. We know right now that so-called independents, self-styled independents, maybe about a third of them favor impeachment. So two-thirds don't. So that would have to change, I think, yeah. for, the, for the dynamic to change. All right, let's go to the impeachment in your great column. We'll put a link up to it um, of, I think, the 26th. So the impeachment trap. First of all, do you think that the Dems will get the House almost without uh, question? Like, well, you know, it's funny. I, I've been thinking yes, and then I, you so know, sure talk to people, read to people, and say, well, I don't know, maybe not. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Sure. I mean, it, historically, if you look, uh, presidents in their first midterms have have lost a lot of seats. The average is in the 30s, number of seats that they've lost. And, of course, Democrats only have to win 24 seats to uh, win control of the House. So, I mean, just historically, it looks that way. But, of course, Trump has changed some of our views of historical trends in polling. <laughs> so uh, for people like me who talked about the blue wall, uh, you know, Trump blew up the blue wall. So I'm, I, I'm not saying that uh, all the old rules apply here, although Trump is not on the ballot. Um, so I'm not totally sure. But uh, certainly, if Democrats win the House, there's a, they're going to face significant pressure from their own base to impeach the president. Okay, okay. You doubt the Senate will flip, don't you, I assume? I don't think so right now. Yeah, right. You know, could, um, could I, every, everything you have to caveat, you know. Yeah, sure. No. Let's assume they win the House. Um, and even winning the, win the Senate, I'm jumping ahead but uh, because I just want to focus the discussion on the impeachment itself. Even if they won the Senate, wouldn't be by much. You wouldn't see a conviction of the president if he were impeached, right? You wouldn't see 60. Seems very unlikely. Right. Democrats, Republicans controlled, uh, I think, 55 <laughs> seats in the House when Clinton was impeached. Yep. And uh, they needed... 67, but uh, the most they got on on any Clinton count, I believe, was 50. Yeah, right. So five five Republicans peeled off even on the most serious count, which I think was lying under oath. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. But um, okay. they got 50 votes to remove the president in the House, and that was, you know, only 17 short. All right, well, let's talk about the impeachment trap for, for a couple of minutes. What, what is the trap, and who's it for? The impeachment trap's really for the Democrats, right? Yeah, it is for the Democrats. Uh, well, yeah, I started off this column going back to 2006. If you remember 2006, a little different from today in the sense that George W. Bush was in his second term. But he was approaching the midterms, and uh, things were going really badly. The Iraq War was just a disaster at that time. People were tired of it. They were tired of Bush. They were tired of Republicans. Um, it looked like Democrats were going to win the midterms in November of 2006. But there was a very vocal group of Democrats um, who wanted to impeach George W. Bush if they won. They they believed they had proved that Bush had lied the country into war, 
And so if they won, uh, they wanted to impeach him. That that number included John Conyers, who stood to become chairman of the House Judiciary Committee if Democrats won, which is the committee that originates articles of impeachment. So um, the Democrats were way uh, ahead of the country at that point. They were they were uh, they were not on the same page as most of the country, which was tired of Bush, but didn't want to see him impeached. This very much worried Nancy Pelosi, who stood to become speaker if Democrats won. And so in May, about this time of year, in May of 2006, she basically said flat out, impeachment is off the table. She said it several other times um, during the campaign, and and Democrats won a smashing victory, won control of the House and the Senate. That was, a, remember, it was the one Bush called the thumping. Yep. And uh, immediately after, like the Tuesday, next day after the election, Nancy Pelosi, who's going to become speaker, comes out and says, I meant what I said. You know, Democrats are about uh, making Americans' lives better. We're not about getting even, and impeachment is off the table. And it was. So now we have a significant part of the Democratic base that wants impeachment. The 71% we've seen in the Quinnipiac poll would like to see the president impeached if Democrats win the uh, win the election. 71% of Democrats. So there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of pressure from the base. Now, Nancy Pelosi wants to become speaker again. Now, that's not guaranteed at all because there are a lot of Democrats who are tired of her think she should right, take the side. Right, right. But uh, right now, you'd have to say that she probably has a better chance than anybody of becoming speaker if Democrats win. Yeah, I agree. So um, I don't think it's going to be as easy for her today to just come out and say impeachment is off the table. So what you're seeing now, actually, is Republicans starting to use this argument against Democrats saying, you know, they say they want to improve education and health care, but what they want to do is impeach the president. Right. So vote Democrat, vote impeachment. And uh, so we'll see how that plays out. Okay. Um, now let's put together a couple of strands of this conversation. You talked about arguments the president could make during impeachment. Would he be better off? So not, it's going to sound odd being impeached and having the opportunity to make these arguments, because I think a large body of the American people. Well, let's take a look at the moderates you just mentioned. Just don't like impeachment. They frankly they didn't like it during Clinton, and they I don't think they'd like it now. And it gives him an opportunity to say all sorts of things. And he also knows he's not going to be removed because of what we stipulated about Senate. Is, right. is he better off in that circumstance than now? Well, if all the evidence is going to come out in some form, then he's better off for it to come out in a political context in which his defenders mm-hmm. would have mm-hmm. would have a voice in all this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I suppose you could say he's, he's better if better off if Mueller just comes out and says, "We decided to indict these people. We didn't indict these people, and thank you very much." <laughs> yeah, he would probably be better off if that happened. But it seems unlikely that Mueller's going to do that. I think he probably. I don't know if he's going to go the full star report route, but it seems like he'd probably outline his evidence in a, in a final report. So if if there's a Mueller report out there, then I think you make maybe a good point that Trump would be better if he could air his defense, mm-hmm. and impeachment would be a way to do that. Um, in a way, in a way, and he can't now because we don't know what Mueller's going to say. And yeah. it leaves to people's imaginations, and in these things, people tend to imagine yeah. the worst. Yeah. You know, as far as Democrats are concerned, uh, it's interesting, because, you know, there's this conventional wisdom that impeachment was disastrous for Republicans, and that um, it is true that in 19, the 1998 midterms, 
with impeachment was a huge topic. It was just about to happen within days. You know, Newt Gingrich had said the Republicans were going to pick up a bunch of seats, and they lost a bunch of seats. Didn't lose control of the House, though, but they lost a bunch of seats. So um, yeah. what was interesting is, for all this talk about how much it cost Republicans, they kept control of the House in 98 and 2000 and 2002 and 2004, and only lost it in 2006 for a completely different set of reasons. It had nothing to do with Clinton's impeachment. Yeah. So, you know, the whole group move on, you know, was, was founded to punish Republicans for impeaching him. And it really didn't happen uh, all that much. My, my sense, you know, looking back on the whole affair and having lived through it, is that Americans were just not, in retrospect, as they balance everything in, in their views, they, they weren't, they just weren't, they weren't all that troubled by Clinton being impeached because I think they felt he deserved punishment. But they most definitely did not want him removed from office. Yeah. And so that's what happened. I mean, in a, in a you know, sort of the big picture sense, what Americans sort of wanted happened. So I, I kind of have faith in, uh, in the electorate in its own way to, um, to get its way. So we'll, okay. we'll see what happens. And then the last thing I want to ask you, and it's back to the, the article you wrote on the 23rd, we'll put a link up to that too, is a, a very subtle, very smart of you. Uh, also, you know, the smartest people see the things that are staring you right in the face. And I was just reminded, you know, where the heck is the burden of proof here? All this stuff about the dossier and, you yeah, know, and, and yeah. all that. I've had people are talking, and as you cite John Brennan and others, well, president hasn't proved it's untrue. Where, where's the burden and where should the burden be? When you make accusations against somebody, it's not to that person to have to, uh, to have the burden to respond. Yeah, uh, this is something uh, I had been hearing for quite a while. And it's one of these things. I'm sure you've done it. You know, you kind of put it, file it away in your brain. And I need to write something about this. So I, I finally heard it so often that I did. But specifically as concerns the dossier, you hear a lot of people, and, I, and I'm not talking just uh, you know random talking heads. I, I quoted Diane Feinstein, who's the top uh, Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Quoted Lawrence Tribe, the Harvard Law professor, um, John Brennan, the former CIA director. We've right. had a lot of people who say, right. look. Uh, say what you want about the dossier, but nothing in it has been proven untrue. Right. So therefore, it's right. legitimate right. if it has not been proven untrue, which does really stand our the old standard of justice on its head, which is that uh, it, the burden is on the accuser to prove that the allegation is true. And and in this case, you know, even in his 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 uh, interviews, James Comey talked about how how uh, Trump was very upset by the, the sex allegations in the dossier and asked um, asked Comey to investigate them, to show them, to show that they were untrue. And Comey said, well, I, I told him it's very difficult to disprove a lie. It's very difficult to prove something did not happen. Yeah. And yet that's the standard we're seeing applied to Trump in much of the discussion about the, uh, the Trump-Russia affair, and in particular about the dossier, which is still unproven in all of its, all of its uh, major serious allegations of wrongdoing are, are unproven. And the best its defenders can do is saying, well, author of the not dossier. proven false yet. Even by the author of the dossier, right? Even by the author. As a matter of fact, the author of the dossier, if you read 
the Michael Isikoff and David Korn book right. about Russia, and, and both of them were actually briefed by the author of the dossier in real time back before the election. The sex allegation, uh, the Moscow hotel room allegation, is the one in which people had the least faith, and even the author of the dossier said there was maybe a 50-50% chance it's true. Now, you want to go out and start defending something that even the yeah, author right. says, well, maybe it's half, yeah. half and half true. Good for you. And that's not a very strong case. Good for you. Last thing, I, I said that was last, but just one other t- thing on this, because I just, someone asked me about the Dr. Ronnie Jackson thing. And with the analysis we've just done, <clears throat> the question is, if Tester went way too far, and if these allegations were untrue, why did Dr. Jackson step in? Yeah, well, there's I, there's a couple of ways to look at this. I think, you know, just as a reporter, um, when you see all these allegations come out, and you know they're they're being distributed by John Tester, the Democrat on the committee that was um, considering that would consider the Jackson nomination. There's an intrinsic value in knowing whether something is true or not. So okay, he's withdrawn, fine, but I want to know. Yeah. Are these allegations true? And if they weren't, or if they were impossible to prove, as we just were discussing in another context, then Senator Tester really has some explaining to do. And he's up for re-election this year. Maybe he has to explain it to his voters. But um, on the other hand, uh, you can also make the argument that, look, the nominee has withdrawn. There's no reason to drag his name through the mud. He's not running for anything. You know, let's, let's don't look at every nanosecond of his life. So, I mean, I can see the argument on both sides about that. But I have to say, I mean, we've seen this kind of stuff in which allegations are made anonymously. You know, in a, a member of the Senate or a member of the House floats them. They're given the big treatment in, in a major newspaper, and then they become true. You know, they're just sort of accepted as true. And I would personally like to see what in this is true and what's not, because yeah. we have had the Secret Service say that some of these things that were alleged did not happen. Some of these things. Yeah, I just, I, I've had accusations against me that are just totally untrue. And when, and when that's the case, I think of the, Tim, I call it the Tim Russett rule about Clinton. I don't know if you remember this. You were maybe too young remember this uh during monica Lewinsky said look if this stuff wasn't true you wouldn't be parsing you'd be saying this is crazy i never did this who is this woman so i, I i'm missing that from ronnie jackson or did i just miss yeah it? yeah i mean so i, I mean you know. look you may not uh, you, you may be in a situation in which some stuff is true and some stuff is not true and you don't want to get out on your high horse denying the things that are not true. Yeah, and then be stuck um, with the things less that to get are. into the things that are true. So, I, look, I, I don't know, and I'll tell you right now, I have not done any yeah, okay. reporting on these allegations to see if they're okay. true or not. It's just Maybe such a I've, tough... It's just I've a, read published reports. It's just such a tough town. It's just such a brutal town. Man, it is, isn't yeah, it? It is. It is. You know, a friend of mine said people think New York is tough. People just, you know kick each other around about money you know and it's just about money but this is this is life and death and reputation and wrecking your career and your future i mean it's unbelievable goes on you are so correct byron thank you very very much um bad news is i kept you a long time the good news is this was not a four minute shot and break for a commercial we love this podcast and we th- <laughs> I had a great time bill have me on anytime we're grateful we, you give us so much thank you sir bye-bye thank you bill bye bye Byron York. you're listening to the bill bennett show 
Okay, time to check the emails. We really want to make sure we spend time reading and responding to them on the podcast. Claude, what do we have? All right, so uh, we'll start with Scott uh, Willits in Edmond, Oklahoma. Uh, it says, Bill, really, there's nothing to watch after March Madness? He seems outraged. He says, how about the competition for the oldest trophy in North American sports, Lord Stanley's Cup? He said, there's nothing quite like playoff hockey. Love the show. Been a fan of yours since the Reagan administration and was an avid listener to Morning in America. Thank you for all that you do. Now, who's that from? Uh, that's from Scott in Oklahoma. What's he doing watching hockey? Well, I was going to say, you know, nothing says hockey like Oklahoma. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, I'm glad after Lord Stanley's Cup, he told me what sport he was talking about. <laughs> well, I will say this. Playoff hockey is quite interesting. Now, I've only seen two games thus far, and they were both capitals. That is the Washington Capitals. Correct. Isn't that our basketball team? Uh, that's the hockey team. Okay. Uh, the Wizards are the basketball okay. team. Now, they were up to zip against the Penguins in game one of the second round, and they gave up three goals in five minutes, less than five minutes. And no. Lost. Yeah. And lost. Right. But they've since won the next two, so they're up two games to one. So if they win that, are they the, no, they don't. They haven't won the Stanley Cup. They have to go to another one. Exactly. And I, I was with some people from Las Vegas, and they were all about these uh, this team, this rookie The Golden team. Knights, yeah, the expansion team. So apparently the way they do the expansion draft, and these teams really have an opportunity to be pretty good. I mean, they get good players. Now, yeah. saying that, I don't know one player on the Golden Knights. I couldn't tell you. One person. I don't know one player in, in the <laughs> NHL. <laughs> no, you know Alexander Boris Ovechkin. What's his name? Boris. No, he's a Russian ruler. <laughs> well, you know Alexander Ovechkin. I said Boris Ripken, and of course I'm thinking of Cal Ripken. <laughs> so I'm combining sport. two sports and not getting anybody. <laughs> Cal, who'd you say? Alexander Ovechkin, Capitals. I've heard his name. Sidney Crosby. I have no idea. Okay. I have no idea. You remember Wayne Gretzky. I do remember Wayne okay. Gretzky, right. yeah. And I do know that Bill Cower, who was the, was the coach of the Steelers mm-hmm. for years, and is now an NFL commentator. Yeah, on CBS. His, yeah. his daughter, Megan, who okay. went to Princeton with one of my sons, was the leading scorer on the basketball team. Stay with me. <laughs> Princeton <laughs> women's basketball team. And she married a hockey player. Okay. From Raleigh. And you don't know his name. I do not. But I do know a <laughs> hockey player. And uh, it was a great wedding with a bunch of hockey players. That's all I know. I mean, I might as well be... Seth Liebson, for those familiar with the old the name, when it comes to hockey, I have no idea. His famous line in a sports bar or with the talking sports is, well, don't get me started on, and then yeah, fill in the blank. don't get me started. And that's just how yeah. he Yeah, how he avoids way. the topics completely. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, there's no, this is the drought for me, Scott, and I, there's nothing for me. I seized on a headline in my uh, Google. It had a preseason, preseason, preseason selection of the top 25 college football teams in the country. Right. But um, we're going to wait and we're going to It's talk. almost time to make a call to Phil Steele. To Phil Steele. And we'll be box. making that call in June. Yes. And because that thing will be out in, what, June? July? Yes. Will you get your normal three copies or? Well, I hope. I, okay. I mean, I need to reestablish contact. But um, He's he, active on Twitter. I see him all the time. There is talk of a football league that will start next year in February. You saw that. No. Yeah. Yeah, it's a new football league, but I can't. I don't know any more details. Anyway, Scott, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, sort of watching the conflict in politics and right the body blows being delivered. Yeah, 
Uh, so uh, Lori M. Uh, writes in, uh, she says, Dear Dr. Bennett, the New York Times recently ran an article titled The Contract with Authoritarianism. She sent a link to it, which is, uh, in which they not only suggest that Trump is an authoritarian, but that Trump supporters and conservatives are psychologically disposed to author- authoritarianism uh, because they value things <laughs> like order, respect for elders, and discipline, in addition to being motivated by fear of change and uh, closed-mindedness. What were those three things that they favor? Order? Order, respect for elders, and discipline. Sounds like they're all Catholics. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Catholic schools. No, that's not authoritarianism. Authoritarianism meaning stretches, but it means imposing order without freedom. Mm -hmm. Imposing order without freedom. Or or radically limiting the sphere of freedom. Uh, Government by command rather than by legislature or constitution. And it sometimes is blended into, Laurie collapsed into tyranny or totalitarianism, but there is a distinction, at least in, in modern parlance, we regard a distinction between totalitarian governments and authoritarian governments. Authoritarian governments governed by authority, governed by command, strong arm rulers and so on, who may restrict spheres of of freedom, uh, attempt to, to change laws, not the same as totalitarian, which is full control of the state and of the people. Kim Jong-un is a, is a totalitarian. Putin is close to totalitarian, as is Xi, but it looks better. Uh, some of the people we have supported, some dictators, for example, uh, whom we have supported have been authoritarians, but not totalitarians. And, um, you know, you could argue CC in Egypt is maybe a, an authoritarian, but not a totalitarian. Totalitarian is the boot of the of the of the state is on your neck the whole time. But uh, you know this argument that Trump's authoritarian because he likes order is just kind of a stupid argument because order is order is important. Order in the classroom, order in society, order at the borders, etc. But that just sounds like a hit job. Another attack on Trump, which is you know standard fare every day now, every it's, day, and seemingly uh, an attack on conservatism as well. She says sure. that it's silent about the liberal, tribal, and fear-driven tendencies of the left. Well, uh, well let me interrupt. I mean, no, no more totali- greater totalitarian impulse than the left. And it was the leftist Marxists who created the most and worst authoritarian, read totalitarian states, Stalin and Mao, etc. Wow, she says preferring to present the liberal personality as uh, valuing independence, self-reliance, and curiosity. She also had a uh, suggestion of Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. Oh, Dr. Jordan Peterson is great. He's wonderful. He's the Canadian psychologist from the University of Toronto. I suggest everybody go to YouTube. There's a long queue of people lined up asking him for interviews. We'll we'll get there eventually, but I've read some of Peterson's stuff or cited it on this podcast. He's a wonderful guy. Wonderful, great thinker, and uh, making a real difference. Pay more attention to him than Kanye West, because he is consistent. <laughs> I just spoke about that in my rant. <laughs> yeah, um, so uh, here's another email from Bob Smith. Uh, he says, uh, we'd like to hear more, more, more also. Enjoyed your visit to Special Report a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, he said, today I'd like to hear your view on Ronnie Jackson, uh, step-down story. I think it's a disgrace. like to hear your read on it. Uh, can it be reversed? Uh, after we heard you speak, by the way, uh, on charter schools, on Focus, I guess Focus on the Family, many years ago, our oldest daughter went to uh, PAVCS for four years. Pennsylvania, yeah. yeah. And he says, Pennsylvania pray charter and, school, yeah. He says, pray and never give up. 
So, uh, yeah, Ronnie Jackson. What's your thoughts? Yeah, Ron, Dr. Jackson. I'm a little puzzled by it. I mean, I do I do think that uh, Senator Testa from Montana, Tester, did uh, kind of open up too much too early and accused the guy, slandered the guy, apparently slandered him with all these accusations before they were checked out. So yeah, he if you if you do it without checking somebody out, you've done wrong. Uh, and uh, and Ronnie Jackson withdrew. This is about the fact that he was a you know he's a pill pusher. He was drinking too much and uh, and so on and so on. Um, and it turned out a lot of these charges were false. The only thing that that, that I've asked myself here and I asked my audience is if they were false and completely false, why did he drop out? Okay. Right. So I mean, if you know if you're falsely accused, you know, Claude, you. On the way, you know, to the studio, you hit and ran. You know, and you absolutely didn't. You, you don't. You don't turn in your driver's license. You say, right. "Hey, it's crazy." So my guess is that you know, there's smoke. There may be a little fire. Okay. Probably not what's alleged. Probably nothing like what was said. And and I don't mean to impugn the guy because I don't know. But when someone drops out. Uh, it's the old uh, Tim Russer thing about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. You know, when he said it wasn't true, he said, if, you know, that's not enough. If, if, if you're accused of something like that and it's absolutely not true, you're screaming it from the rooftops. Right, right. And um, it, um, you know, Randy Jackson held a press conference and said, what's the charge? And then refuted him right down the line. We haven't seen that. So let the man go in peace here and uh, someone else be put in. But my guess is this was uh, this was a hit job, uh, a character assassination job. But there was probably some material there. Some rope was provided with which to hang him. That's my guess. Sad to say. Well, there you go. Well, thanks a lot, Bob, for emailing in. And if uh, anybody listening now wants to email in, just BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. All right. Let's leave it there, and we'll get into more details on the next episode. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, please go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends, and we'll catch up next week. Hey, Claude, people want to like me on Facebook, they can. If they don't want to like me on Facebook, can they unlike me on Facebook? Well, we don't want them to unlike you. We want them to like the page. Oh, okay. But they don't have to personally like you so to they like can, you on Facebook. They go to like me and say, I don't like you. No, they can like you, and then they can comment and say they don't like okay. you. But we don't encourage people to do that. We don't want any kind of online bullying and things like that. Not bullying of me. Yeah, I'm, Don't mess with Bill. I'm a, a song don't mess. I'm a tender, tender guy. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Claude. <laughs>